Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hi, Yolanda. I'm excited to have you on the show. You're a founder, you're an operator, and you're building a community. So I'm interested in hearing your thoughts and insights. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me today, Jeremy. So what's interesting, Yolanda, is that you've been someone who has been in tech space and been entrepreneur since young. Could you share a little bit more about when you first started being entrepreneurial? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think that I've always had that that kind of entrepreneurial drive in me. I would, I think my family really encouraged that. I think I, I came from parents who were, were quite entrepreneurial on the side as well. I think I just always was able to kind of see a situation and also envision how it could be better. And so that's, that's really something I carried with me. When I was a, a teenager, I didn't like the music scene in my hometown of Toronto. And so I would message DJs on MySpace. I'm showing, showing my age a bit, but message them on, on MySpace and book them for shows um, at this warehouse space that I had with my friends. And so that was, that was a very early instance of it. And I think that's something I kind of then carried with me throughout my career. You've done a lot since that early entrepreneurial experience. Could you share a little bit more about yourself since then? Yeah, definitely. So I'm born and raised in Toronto, Canada. I have always had this lens of, I wanted to expand the boundaries of my comfort zone, whether that was in the work I did, whether that was in the geographies I worked in. And that's something, you know, now looking back, having worked in over, lived and worked in over 10 countries across, most recently here in, based here in Singapore for the past seven years, but I've worked across Africa, the Middle East, Europe, and uh, in North America. My career has been, been definitely an uncommon path, I would say. You know, I started off doing a lot of work in the music industry, as I mentioned. Worked for a major label recording artist as a, as a production assistant. Then did a stint in international development, did internships for the, the European Court of Human Rights, for the UN. And then ultimately took that kind of purpose-driven lens and really believed in, in technology's ability to transform lives. So I started my first job in tech in sub-Saharan Africa. I was working for Rocket Internet initially, you know, building their first e-commerce business and then food delivery business from the ground up um, in West Africa. Then I worked for Uber in uh, market launch in the early days, um, which took me to Kenya and South Africa. And then, and then came out to Southeast Asia on a whim and was really fascinated and, and enthralled by the kind of, the ecosystem had that same momentum that I saw in Africa. It was still early. You had a lot of emerging markets, but, but it was, the ecosystem was also further along. And, and so I moved out here. I, was, I joined Deliveroo on the, in their first year of operation, held a variety of commercial and operational leadership roles and looked after kind of APAC and, and the Middle East. And then uh, I got to where I am today, which was really born out of my own experience. And I founded Uncommon, which is a private professional network for women in leadership, really starting from the question of what if a professional network could really do more 
for women. So we offer everything from kind of peer coaching to workshops to really deep, deeper connections as a community as well. Amazing. And I think what's interesting is that you've always had this very global outlook. So, you know, you've worked as a market launcher in multiple markets across, you said, Africa, through Middle East, through APEC. So could you share a little bit more about you know, what you've taken away from the experience working across these tech companies as a market launcher? Yeah, what I've taken away is twofold. So firstly, you know, as human beings, we all want the same things. We want to feel safe. We want to belong. We want to connect with people. We want to feel like we can have a sustainable livelihood. There are some universal truths that exist within human beings. But as building a bit, when you're building a business, the, the kind of flip side of that coin is that you really have to have the humility to separate your own experience from the markets that you're building in. And, and this is one of probably the most common mistakes I see in interna- when startups do international expansion is that they think they can kind of copy paste. So there's a sort of projection of, you know, the way that they do things in their home market will be the same in other markets. And, and so knowing localization and, and how to actually operationalize it and how to have the humility to do things a little bit differently is something really important. You know, a big one for us, and this is kind of an obvious one, but when I was working for Uber in Kenya, at the time, Uber didn't want to do cash payments. It was a, a taboo within the company, but you're looking at markets where you have a 2% credit card penetration and of that 2%, 40% were being rejected by the banks. Yeah, so, so knowing how to kind of build products that can weave into the, the kind of local tendencies is really important. Yeah, and you know, the truth is, you've worked in a company, some have been better at market launch and entry, and some have been worse. And I think you kind of like started talking a little bit about one of those behaviors that make it worse in terms of a market launch or entry perspective. Well, how else would you say differentiates like a good company that's good at market launching and entry and winning versus one that is worse? Yeah, yeah the best uh, the best companies that I can see are fantastic at playbooking and really learning from each market that they launch and having those sort of shared resources across the team. That is really key so that you're not making the same mistake in multiple markets. I think it's also about getting the right team in. You need team members, you know, even if you send someone who doesn't, who has the organizational knowledge, but not the local market knowledge, that person has to hire teams that understand, that understand, that have that operator experience on the ground, because there's, there's sometimes a lot of unforeseen challenges. You know, when I, even though I was sort of market launching, say at, at uh, Rocket, you know, my entire team of 60 was local. And that was really important to the success of the business. And, and, and I didn't always, quite frankly, I, I think I, I sometimes made mistakes and thought I could do things a different way. But having that humility again to kind of to listen and to operationalize and trust uh, those that really understand the market is key. And what's interesting, of course, is that these are all the things that make it good, right? Team humility, low hiring locally, being fast to move and localizing like, you know, cash on payments instead of credit card. And I think what we've seen actually is that for both Rocket, for Uber, but for a lot of other companies that have tried to bid scale, a lot of them have actually ended up losing to local competitors. And I feel like all the things you said are things that I'm sure someone in Global HQ writes it down on a whiteboard, right? It's like, humility, move fast, localize, <laughs> hire local. Yeah. But then they still lose, right? Even though they have all these advantages, like 
there it is, the core platform, supposedly, you know, it's rinse and repeat, you have the market entry, you have the capital. So what do you think is the advantages of the local player? Or why is it that they're able to win from your perspective? There's very clear reasons, I think. There's an ability to build, when you don't have a global product, you have to, you know, within a global product, you've got to, you've got to create features, you've got to create a product that can work across your many, your many markets. When you are maybe focusing on a region, you're able to meet the needs of your customers. You're able to take that customer obsession to the next level. You can be customer obsessed and be in 50 countries, but you're going to find that common denominator and you're not going to be able to dig into or put dev resource behind these very localized kind of pain points for your customer. And so ultimately you're not serving them to the highest degree. And so that's what I've seen with a lot of these kind of blitz scalers is that they just simply can't build those localization and beat out competitors that can and ultimately win on, on serving customer needs, on meeting their behavior and building products that are more aligned. Should, I mean, it's from a consumer perspective, I'm so curious, should you vote with your dollar for a global technology player or should you vote for a local competitor? I'm just kind of curious because, you know, you've been on both sides, you're a local, you're a local builder, you've been part of the global team fighting. I guess a lot of consumers always feel like, should, should they bother? Should they just vote for the best product? I'm just so curious about how you think about it. Yeah. So I've always worked for global players, but never in HQ. So I, yeah. I really understand this. Uh, this challenge super intimately. Yeah, I think I think you vote for the the, the product that's that's best meeting your needs, and, that, and that's how I see customers behave. Yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily solely choose a, and I don't think mm-hmm. consumers solely choose a product because because say the brand or the the founder is from that region. I think that that they're also very strong on yeah on building and understanding those nuances. You know, a simple one is Deliveroo. When we did sort of the taxonomy of cuisine types in the UK, it's okay to say that this to select a cuisine type type that says Chinese, like there's Chinese food. But you know, in Singapore, there's such a range. You know, whether you're having mala or you're having dim sum or you're or you're having a chakrito, it's a very different kind of search experience. And being able to build that in can help drive conversion. But you you just can't roll something out like that or hasn't necessarily been rolled out with the, the kind of local nuances as well. So, Yeah, and I think that local nuance is really something that the market launcher and the country general manager eventually really has to do a lot of work off. And obviously that local competitors by design localized. How do you convince HQ to pay attention? Because that's what I've heard all the time from market launchers, right? It's like global product, global engineering doesn't prioritize my features. And that's why we're losing, right, to some extent, even though we're throwing money or incentives, etc. So is there any hacks or any ways to advocate or articulate your case or compel or whatever it is? Yeah, I think this is a skill set that is sometimes overlooked in global organizations and that sometimes as a builder, as an operator, you're like, okay, I can just like show the numbers and show the business case and it's going to get built because of the size of the opportunity. Like, And this is something we work on actually a lot at, at Uncommon is the stakeholder management. The more senior you become, the more you need to kind of work with central product teams. And, and it isn't always about going in guns blazing and, and shoving a, a business case down their, their throats. I think where I have been successful in getting product support is you've got to build those relationships. You've got to take people on that journey 
as an APAC leader, I think I had to spend time with HQ, people in HQ and getting them to understand what's at stake. And, and that is overlooked and that can take time as well. It doesn't always yield, yield the results, but where, where I can see it has worked is helping to educate, take people on that journey and, and educate them as well in, in those teams. And what's interesting is, you know, you started mentioning a little bit about Uncommon and you talk often about how you care about female and women leadership and representation. Could you share a little bit more before I talk about Uncommon, like what was your experience as a women executive and how that eventually inspired you to do something about it? I grew up with three brothers. I think, I think I'm pretty great at what, what do you call it, code switching or, um, or you know, or, or being in, in male-dominated environments. I don't think that's true for for all women. But what I realized, like, being on leadership teams is that you get to a certain point where, where there aren't that many women. I think I was one of three out of 50 countries of, of country managers. And, and where that becomes challenging is that it becomes very easy to give back. You can mentor younger women, you can speak on a panel. There's a lot of opportunities for that, but there's not, there weren't a lot of ways that I could actually connect with women who are in the same boat, who are facing some of the the similar challenges or who could understand some of the nuances. And so, yeah, Uncommon was really born out of that, just this, this idea that leadership is lonely for anyone, but that it's particularly lonely for female leaders. And if we can bring together women who are, you know, across different industries kind of w- winning and finding, it, finding that playbook for getting ahead, then we could kind of rewrite the rules our, ourselves and, and really see more women almost like a concept of, of time travel, but, but see more women in leadership positions faster, see them making more decisions and, and ultimately seeing that kind of transform society over, overall. So that was, that was sort of the thinking behind that. You used the phrase like code switching, that you're used to it and you know, it happens a lot. So what's unique or different about code switching? Because if I'm in America, I speak differently in terms of how I enunciate, my vocabulary and even the TV shows I talk about versus where I'm in Southeast Asia. And then there's a difference that you cross the border between Indonesia and Singapore. There's a huge amount of difference as well. And so there's a lot of code switching in terms of the cultural or geographic aspects of it. But I think you're saying something something unique about the aspect of like women and code switching. Could you share a little bit more about what you mean by that? Sure. I think because when we look at the workplace, and, and I, th- I do think we're going through this, this you know, upheaval of the, work, the, the greatest kind of upheaval in, in the workplace that we've seen since the Industrial Revolution. But the workplace was really not designed with women uh, as a feature. It was designed as, as women, women sort of a bug, to use that, that analogy. And so, so a lot of, I think, how women have been taught to lead was like, let me just copy paste what men were doing. And, and the challenge with that is it's, it's, it's not as simple as like, okay, I speak differently with my Trinidadian family than I do with on this podcast. But it's also that it isn't the same playbook. If there's, you know, the kind of telltale, the, tell, the, the classic uh, story is that often as senior women, and I've had this myself, is you'll have feedback, you'll get performance reviews where it will say like, you're too aggressive, people are afraid of you. Um, and, but then you also get that you're you're not assertive enough, and and so you're constantly walking this tightrope. So the same behavior isn't always perceived; it doesn't always land in the same way. So it it, it isn't quite as simple as okay, I'm just going to change the way I'm operating because that doesn't necessarily get me ahead 
in the same way. And when you think about that you know, phrase about like getting ahead and talking about performance reviews and I think the coding, I think, of various behaviors, I think what bugs you the most personally about all of that? I mean, you know, we're talking about this at a high level, but is there any, any particular things that bug you the most in your own experience, observation? Yeah, definitely. I'm like, Jeremy, I'm like, I don't have to pay my therapist. I'm like, great, let me, tell, let me unpack this. Yeah, so one thing I struggled with when I was first in like tech leadership roles was what does your success actually get attributed to? I remember, you know, my region had, had sort of outperformed everyone and we were in this global offsite and our CEO was like saying how, giving out, not awards, but, but just calling out success. And I remember I had canceled a vacation to get this deal off the ground. I had like worked at this time, like worked every weekend. I was working like set 17 hour days and he like called out, you know, the success of my markets, but then sort of qualified that with like, well, we all know that Yolanda gets by on, on that winning smile and charm. And, and I remember like not really knowing what to say, but being, being really, um, yeah, really, really frustrated with that because I had worked so hard and to have it kind of boil down to something so kind of meaning, meaningless was, was really hard. And I think this is something that, that sometimes a lot of women face as well. Well, I think that would piss me off for sure if yeah. I was in your yeah. shoes. Yeah. But it's okay. You know, yeah. I can imagine being very frustrated over drinks on that. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, especially if you've been like, working like a dog, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that's uh, something that, obviously, I think different flavors of that have heard that, you know, from my sister. She's also a technology executive and other folks. So what is it about hanging out with other women? And I put an air quotes here for those How does that help you solve that problem? Because I actually met an, another executive and then she was very much like, well, my key takeaway is I don't hang out with other women. I hang out with the boys, right? Or the men. And, and that's how I get ahead. And that's how I succeeded. That feels like, obviously, this is a, feels like an older uh, generational point of view. But I'm just kind of curious about what is it that being with other women helps you solve that issue from your perspective? Yeah, I don't think it's an either or. I think that, you know, even for myself as a founder, there's times when I'm hanging out with all men. Yeah, you know, the way things are right now, you have to. But I think what happens, it's the same reason, you know, when I think I look at other networks, why do you have a network that is, you know, solely for individuals in law? And it comes down to a level of relevance. And the reason why we decided to focus uncommon as being kind of women only for now in this stage of the company was was that there is this increased level of openness and safety and actually being able to say what's on your mind. And then you can go out to those rooms full of men. You can go into those places where nobody looks like you and nobody has your experience, but you have that sense of being a, a lot less alone. You have that sense of, oh, I'm learning from other people who have been in these same situations. And so I definitely think you need to, to kind of have a network outside of that. But in terms of building safety, in terms of being able to speak very openly and candidly about one's experience, I think having that hyper-relevance is key. You're talking about safety, security, being able to share openly. And that's rare. If I was saying like, hey, Jeremy, I want to be safe and secure about talking about the latest interest rate hikes in Europe. I'll be like, yeah, I can be a safe and secure talking about that. We chat for like hours on that. 
But if you ask me, it'd be like, okay, my boss said that I had a, a winning smile and charm, and I felt pissed off about that, and you know, da, 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 da. that you know, that's a very difficult topic to feel safety and security to talk about. So, so how do you design a space for that from your perspective? Yeah, that's something we kind of look at our customer lifecycle, and we look at each touch point from when we get a waitlist application to when we vet them via interview, to when we contract with them on onboarding, a lot of this is woven into it. And so even how we vet, it's not simply just, okay, is this person good on paper? There's also an element of, are they community-minded? Are they able to hold space for others? That That is a really important component of, of bringing someone into Uncommon. Then we do a lot of work on onboarding and kind of contracting, you know, signing a code of conduct, understanding those principles, but also teaching women at Uncommon to be a peer coach. Sometimes it is also about, okay, how do you respond when somebody shares something really vulnerable? How, what are the tools in your toolkit? Is it that you can give an observation? You can ask a question? You can delve a little bit deeper, ask to give your perspective. So I think it's also just how we set it up. But I will never say we create a safe space because I think it's something that the entire community has to contract on. And so it's it's not on me as an individual, it's something as a founder, but it's as it's something that's woven into and in the charge of every single one of our members. And I think that makes sense, obviously, from a process perspective as a community design perspective. But how do you create that moment? Like, what are the attributes within that space that makes it okay for someone to share about something tough that happened that day or some frustration to have? Yeah. Well, we actually have like a, a vulnerability index that we go through with our coaches and facilitators. And so having them, it's also how we help them facilitate, how we train them how we actually enable them to to model that behavior, how I as a founder actually model that behavior within the community as well. So that's that's important. But you've got to take people on that that journey. I don't think we start our first session, you know, with like, okay, everybody say, share your deepest childhood trauma. But there's there's ways that, you know, whether it's the the way that we do a check-in. So we might ask, you know, what is your top five percent experience since we've last seen you and what's been the bottom? Five percent, and so even just having having that, and sometimes you know, in a group, because I, I when we did the pilot, I actually co-facilitated all of our sessions, and you'll always have a range of people. You'll have people who come in and are just very able to kind of open up, and you'll have people who are much more guarded. But what I can see in every group is that people move, we move the needle. So whether someone starts at like a seven out of ten on the vulnerability spectrum and gets to an eight and but, or someone starts with a two and they get to a three, that's still progress and still making them feel seen and heard, even just through hearing other people's experiences. When you say this vulnerability index is interesting, because that's like saying, like, I don't know, the weakness index or the Death Star explodability index. Yeah, right. Because vulnerability is not... You know, I wouldn't use that as a positive phrase. Like I'll be like, our competitors are vulnerability, let's you know attack. But of course, I also understand where you're coming from, but I'm just kind of curious, like, why is vulnerability important? Why is that such a you know metric or cornerstone of how you're thinking about community? Yeah. Well, I think it's very related to the name of this podcast. I think it, it actually takes so much courage. It's very easy to be guarded and closed, and um, it takes so much courage to be and, and bravery 
to be vulnerable. And, and this is a lot of like, you know, the, the sort of Brene Brown work. But as a leader as well, it's, it takes a lot of courage and building that, that muscle is really key. As a community, though, when we think about building the new network, it's not about just a transactional what can you do for me? What can I do for you? Everybody has their guard up because they think you want something from them. We're really building connection. And I would actually go so far as to say it is impossible to really build connection between individuals without a degree of vulnerability. That's ultimately how you also build that the currency of, of trust. And I think the strongest networks really are, are um, successful at building trust between individuals. But trust between individuals and vulnerability, but how does vulnerability lead to trust between individuals from your perspective? Well, if you're able to see, usually if someone can be open and vulnerable, you're often able, we as humans, we compare how we feel on the inside with how other people look on the outside. And so if you can get a glimpse at how someone is doing on the inside, you're actually able to see your own experience. And in seeing your own experience within someone else, that, that also build, helps you feel that sense of, of trust towards them. And so that, that is a little bit why it's a key ingredient. The community that you've built over time, what would you say are some of the secret sauce of that? Because I think everyone's into community design, at least you know, maybe the Twitterverse and that I'm part of is very big on that. But what would you say are some of like, you talk about some of it, right? Vulnerability index, having that screening process. But what would you say makes the most sense for other people who are looking to build a community of your own? Yeah, I also think there's hyper relevance. I think if you try to be everything to everyone, then you are nothing to no one. And so we do really focus right now on kind of your your director level, your women in, in their kind of mid 30s to early 40s. That's That's sort of our core customer. And, and that level of, of experience and relevance. And that's something I really see us as being vetted um, rather than sort of exclusive. It's not excluding people for the sake of it. It's really how every person we bring into the community can contribute as much as they can receive. I think that's really key. A lot of it has to do with like creating the scaffolding before a little bit of those touch points. But, you know, you can write your values of your community and you can put them on your platform and but if you're not bringing them to life, if you're not looking at how are we actually operationalizing these, how are we also giving the keys, which we hold as a team, to the community, that I think is really, really important. And, and if we're not doing that, then, then you can't really scale community. So now we have you know, a membership committee, we have industry leaders within the community, we have interest groups for you know, working mothers, for women struggling with fertility, for all of these interest groups, those are led by women in, in the community. And in doing that, in doing so, we're able to really, yeah, to, to, to see that community kind of take on a life of its own as well. Amazing. And could you share with us about a time that you personally have been brave? Yeah, I, I, I will say the first time, but this is, this is, I think, how I think about bravery and how I've carried it forward. I'm sort of your classic uh, kid of immigrants. My parents were from Trinidad and Tobago, they were very, came to the country very, very poor as, as uh, teenagers and grew, grew up in Canada. I had a very big focus on education. My parents were really hard to send me to like the, the best schools in, in Canada, but a big point of bravery. And because of this, they really wanted me to have a, a stable career, like a, a doctor or 
work in finance. And a big point of bravery for me was actually learning to define my own success. And so I had done one year of university in Canada studying finance and I was not happy and I came back to the city and I, I didn't want to go back and my parents were really pushing me to, to kind of live a life that was defined by their version of success. And, and I think a recipe for, for unhappiness is leading a life for someone else's version of success. So, you know, they were very strict in these days. I ended up moving out supporting myself at, at age 18. That's where I, I had this music industry business as well, working many jobs. But that was a point of bravery where I took a really challenging, the challenging road. Eventually did go back to university, finished top of my class at Oxford. So they're still, they were happy with me. But I think just defining my own path and defining my own path to success and doing things that are aligned kind of with my own vision uh, for success, that, that's the, the most kind of like brave lens that I take. And it's not always the easiest path, but it's one that I, I try to stick to. I, I laughed at the part where, you know, you you fell out of your parents, but you recovered when you graduated top of Oxford. It's like a... <laughs> it's like every time dream. Yeah, still have their, their, uh, still need their approval somewhere. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. I'm sure they, I'm sure they, they, they laugh about it now as well. Yeah. I think it's a tricky part, right? Which is, I think, the parental expectations about what they think is the safest route or what they think is the best route versus how you think about it. And obviously, to some extent, we're effectively much older and wiser, hopefully, today. Versus how do you think folks should reconcile or understand that parental conflict versus the Because I think there's a big departure between like the family of origin and life of choice, right? Definitely. Like, there's a transition moment. So how do you help people go through that moment? Because I think that's a common problem for a lot of folks. For sure. And I see that even though you know, I'm from, from the West and... But I think there's a, there's a similar thread in Southeast Asia where you have, you know, a lot of people being that kind of first generation success or, and so you have that same level of pressure. What I tell my parents, I hope they don't listen to that. What I tell my parents is the playbook that they needed to follow to get us as a family from point A to point B, fundamentally different from what I need to take the next generation from point B to point C. That is how I think about it. It's you know, I definitely, definitely have had periods of my life where things were more stable, more straightforward, more optimized for stability. But I also think that with that, you don't don't necessarily have the same the same ability to to take risks and and also have like a huge upside if it does work out. And so I think I, talking to my parents about that and them sort of seeing that actually the the, the path that they paved gave me the ability to. Yes, put in place some some structures for stability, but also to take these calculated risks in my career as well. And so not all parents will, will understand that, but I, I think you have one life to live and living it by a way that, that is aligned to yourself, I think is really, to yourself and your values is, is really important and yields kind of the best best results in my opinion. What's interesting, obviously, is like point A to point B is what worked for your parents and point B to point C is what you're working on. Is there any way to communicate that? How do you have that conversation with your parents? Because I think it's one thing, I think, I think that's probably like the fact of it. But how do you have that conversation? How do you, is it not reconciliable? Is it impossible? How do you think about that? I think it's a showing versus telling. Maybe this is my... my uh background and I do have a bit of a rebellious streak, but it's also that getting to a point where you're not asking for their 
permission and approval upfront, but taking them on that journey and, and trying to have them understand your perspective, which sometimes they don't. Like when I talk about my music industry period, my parents were furious. They had worked so hard. They had sent me to private schools. Like we're furious. I, there, there's no other, no other de- depiction of it. But now when they look back on it, they're like, wow, you got to travel the world. It gave you so much perspective. You became so independent. You figured out how to problem solve by like having to be in Mexico City and, and find a cable and, and stuff like that. You know, so I think they can see that retroactively. But, uh, but at the time, they didn't necessarily support it. And so I think approaching it with, it, with that lens helps as well. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. I love to paraphrase, I think, the three big takeaways I got from this. The first, of course, is thank you for sharing. I think that a high-level industry perspective on market launching and obviously kind of like setting the context and takeaways from your experience being a global market launcher and manager and how to compete against local companies and vice versa, how local companies compete with uh, global companies. And second, of course, is thank you so much for sharing, I think, your own personal experience with uh, executive and female code switching and I think the challenges that other women uh, may face in the workplace, especially in the technology space. I think it was really interesting to hear you share about your own personal experience, as well as how that generalizes to other folks. And lastly, thank you so much for sharing about community design, about how you think about creating safe and secure environments for folks, but also your vulnerability index, your community selection process, and everything that happens to convert what folks consider a weakness into something that's a shared community value. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.